0: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Coming up on this week's show, Apple officially kills the iPod.
2: Portal comes to the Nintendo 64. We chat to the co-founder of Revolution Software, Tony Warren
1: The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one book you should definitely check out from them, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, the new expanded edition, with 70 extra pages, 60 new images, and a fascinating reminder of the important role the Mac played in the history of video gaming. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 327, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our favourite part of the week where we get to completely nerd out for the next hour ish, all about our favourite subject retro video games, of course, and we'll be bringing you up to speed on all the big headlines in the world of retro gaming from the last week and, of course, bringing you a veteran of the industry. We have a guest on every single episode, so we'll tell you more about our incredible guest in just a minute. Nice of you to uh, take yourself away from your uh, Amiga DJing for an hour as well, Ravi, to hop on. I know you've got a pretty busy weekend ahead. I'm prepping because I'm
2: I'm, going to be doing a battle, so uh, I think, I don't know, this might be the first Amiga DJ battle in history, but <laughs> it's at the uh southwest amiga group and this is a pretty cool event workbench 2022 it, it it been delayed before because of covid but um this this event's quite big you know you get you get about 100 people there and uh people are all meeting up they're showing different projects um you know the guys from retro games limited are there and they're going to be showing their uh a500 mini and doing like a presentation on it as well so there'll probably be oh, some nice. more info and like a kind of show and tell there. And um yeah, I'm going to be DJing Hoffman who is the actual creator of the DJ software that we're using. So I think he's going to kick my ass. I've I've been preparing tunes and I'm nervous and uh yeah, it's going to be live streamed as well. So uh, we'll put a link in the show notes so you folks can check that out.
1: How do you decide who wins the battle then? Is it because I don't Audience normally decides,
2: like a- I think. So right, okay. I think it's it's going to be like we have a little section each. And we play our tunes and then the audience kind of votes on it. And I don't know if we get a prize. I I want a prize, but (laughs) even a chocolate bar would be good.
1: The pride is the prize. The pride, yeah. So not that you're using your um, massive audience on this podcast every week to your advantage and telling every Retro listener to come online and vote for you. If it it was
2: a virtual one, we could spam it, couldn't we? But um, (laughs) you, you have to be there in person, yeah.
1: So you're doing that this coming weekend on Sunday, yeah.
2: Oh, on Saturday, Saturday night. Saturday so actually it? Okay, tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah.
1: You listen to the show when it comes out on Friday. We'll uh, we'll link that up on our socials, and I'll stick it in the show notes as well. Um, you've been actually out and about again this week. Went to the the Birmingham Gaming Market for the first time. Yeah, I did. Um, it's not the first time; the second time
3: I've been. to oh, it, right. well, it might even be the third time, but yeah, it was. It's the second one since COVID, since lockdown and everything like that. Second one in Birmingham, but yeah, that was really fun. I need to stop spending so much money. <laughs> um, but it is really cool I go with my friend Jason and like it keeps happening like oh you Joe from the retro I like every you know I say keeps happening but it keeps happening when I'm with Jay and like and it's really nice I'm always like oh yeah I yeah, am kind of thing like you know nice to meet you etc uh, this particular person didn't tell me their name unfortunately but um, he's just like are you paying these people <laughs> like it's crazy but <laughs> it, it's, it's just like look it's like minded people we're at a game we're at a retro games event were, were they what, in a brummy
2: brummy accent though are you, you know? Joe from the Retro? <laughs> no, 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 they wasn't. But no, um it, it it was really,
3: really fun. Um it's just great getting out, you know, and just seeing people and talking to people and saying, you know, even people who aren't fans of the show and stuff, but just seeing familiar faces, you know, talking to the vendors yeah. who are always there and stuff, so It was really really cool to get out but uh, it was missing battling Amiga DJs
2: I must admit that would have been everything needs battling Amiga DJs to make it It better
1: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah very busy summer ahead lots of stuff going on of course we'll keep you up to date with uh, where we're going to be over the coming months as well Uh, let's get into this week's show though because we've actually got an incredible guest uh, interview that me and Ravi did um, last night actually with that Tony Warrener. now he was the co-founder of of revolution software. And, you know, I mean, we've done episodes about, you know, Beneath a Steel Sky, a couple of episodes about that. But I mean, God, Beneath a Steel Sky, you know me, I'm a huge point-and-click adventure game fan, and I'd rate that game up there in my top five of all time. Just an incredible game.
2: Well, they, they were a great adventure software company, and kind of uh, Laura the Temptress was a huge one, and then yeah. Beneath a Steel Sky, and then it went into uh, Broken Sword later on. And it was a really kind of unique period where they were changing from, uh you know floppy disk format and uh they were getting into cds so there was stuff like voice acting that was getting added but also like tony's got a really big history with uh charles who we've previously had on the podcast who was the other founder of revolution Mm -hmm. and um you know there's just some fantastic stories about like programming in the early days the relationships between companies as well and uh you know Telecom Soft and stuff, um, the the Darling brothers, and there's just a, a lot of history and connections in this interview,
1: and it's it's a really interesting one. And I think, like you said, we've had Charles on the show, but it's always nice to kind of get the other side of the story because that's the thing we say i mean we often get people who've maybe worked for the same company at similar times but you generally find that you get a completely other side of the story and it's much more rounded picture isn't it getting someone else from the same company yeah and it's nice and it's kind of like how did you guys meet
2: and then how did you Mm. develop together and work and end up kind of building into into this great company and he's actually got this book coming up from eight bits to revolution and uh we're gonna talk a bit about that and you know this is a a really interesting interview.
1: I'm, I'm sure you guys are going to like it. Yeah, so Tony's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Before then, of course, every week we keep a, a beady eye on all the stories that are happening in the world of retro gaming. And <laughs> we actually have a little, uh, I've got a Facebook tab where everything. every time I see something, I just click on save. And then end of the week, we've got a nice little collection. We all do that. And obviously we have a Discord as well where our listeners kind of dump stories in there too. So if you ever spot anything you think would we'll make a good news story, um, join us on Discord. Because I don't think we've talked about Discord on the show for quite a while now, have we?
2: Uh, no, and it's, it's it's quite good. Like, we have different sections in there as well. And we have, like, the mm. backers chat. And we have a new one, which is the music channel, uh, which Cat demanded. And uh, it's pretty cool having the music channel because you can just, like, share some cool tunes and... uh You know, there's a lot of like similar culture and stuff that goes with video games as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, this is one that a lot of people posted in our Discord. And um, a headline that's been everywhere over the last week, that Apple has finally officially retired the iPod. Now, there is an article on uh, uh, (laughs) TechRadar.com that put the subheading in there, the iPod plays its last track. Now, of course, we're not talking about, you know, the old scroll wheel iPods that uh, got discontinued, God, probably about 10 years ago now, I think, didn't they? Um, but we're talking about the iPod Touch. Now, I must admit, <laughs> I didn't realise he even still sold the iPod Touch. Oh, I yeah, yeah. I, I, I know a lot of people
2: that got iPods because they didn't want kids to have phones yeah. and have that kind of phone connectivity, but have the iPod and have something that they could play with. And it was a, a cool kind of device in that way. I knew they were still going, but that's because I I follow
3: Metal Jesus and I know he's a really big iPod fan. Like he like buys, Mm. he does videos on them and stuff like he he tries to collect like every single variant and stuff like that, which is really interesting. But I didn't realize, you know, kind of like when the iPhone came out in 2007 and stuff and around the early 2010s, like when iPhone really blew up, Mm. I didn't even realize like the touch was a thing. Like my first kind of like seeing the touch, you know, with the, the, the touch screen and everything was the iPhone. You know, I didn't realize you could essentially, you know, get an iPhone, which was without the phone. You know, I didn't realize I had it the wrong way around in my head, if that makes sense. Like I was like, oh, an iPod touch is an iPhone without the phone, where it's actually no. An iPhone is an iPod touch with the phone capability. But like you say, you don't really see many people. You don't see people really using them anymore, like in the street and stuff like that. At least I don't. Apparently they sold 39 million of them. You know of, of of the iPod in general, but I feel like I feel like it would have been a lot more than that. But I'm assuming from 2007, the sales kind of dipped massively because of the iPhone. I imagine, and it kind of makes sense that they are discontinuing it because of you know the technology essentially exists in iPads and iPhones, and that's what people buy now. I guess never. Yeah, and I think that's the case because you know. <laughs> I disagree. Better right, have
1: you mentioned then about people getting their kids, you know, iPod Touches. But mm-hmm. I think most, you know, most of my relatives, their kids have got iPads, you know, iPad Minis, generally what they have, um, you know, if you, if you want like a tablet without a phone interface. For, for me, it was like, th- there's a lot of high-res audio players out there.
2: There's like, I know, and and this isn't retro gaming. This is, I know we're talking about audio, but it's, it's still kind of in that vein. There's lots of high-res audio players out there and I think there's a big market for it. And those are bloody uh, earpods, I hate them so much. They have spatial audio in them and these ones don't have spatial audio in the iPod. So I think it might be a decision of Apple to kind of drop them, even in the world of like streaming media and stuff. I still think there's a place for having an iPod, even just in your car, just have that selection of tunes or, or, you know, if you're offline, if you're in a building that's got huge concrete walls and you can't kind of get a connection, you know, I, And also higher quality, high res and stuff. I think um, maybe it's a decision by Apple. I miss them. And I I think there's lots of MP3 players out there as well. Um, Lots of high res ones that I've seen that are really good quality. And also the Zune as well, which was cool. Bring back the Zune. Bring back Zune.
3: (laughs) What, what What was your guys? Go to MP3 players, and was it iPods? Did you both have iPods? Oh, mine, yeah, yeah, yeah iPod. I, I, the
1: thir- yeah. first iPod I got, yeah, the oh, first really? other one, in and two. You had the Nano, did you, Ravi?
2: Yeah, yeah, and then I had a before that I had a Creative Audio thing, but um, also I don't know, the, some of the iPods did actually have a few games on them as well. Even the like little jog wheel early ones had a. Yeah, I think it like was Ar- on there as well. Yeah, yeah. Arkanoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I broke it.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, cause I've, I'm a bit of an iPod collector as well, kind of unintentionally. It got to a stage where I think, you know, around the time when everyone started getting smartphones, a lot of my friends and relatives started to like retire their iPods and for some reason they would say, oh, do you want this? So I've got a drawer full. I've got about 25, 30 iPods, I think. Um, I think I did actually get them out on our patrons hangout once. I was going through the drawer and just kind of pulling out any ones I could find. And yeah, the first ever iPod, you know, I actually got a new battery for mine. And I did start to use it again a couple of years ago, just, you know, for a bit of novelty. But I must admit, even though I've got all these MP3 players, I know you said, Ravi, it's quite nice to have your own music collection in your pocket. But I must admit, I don't really find a situation when when I'd use it anymore. I mean, even in the car, I've got, um, you know, an an in-car Alexa and I've got a uh, USB USB hub in the car, something my audio.
2: like a little time machine though, like picking one of the old yeah. iPods, charging it up and going, Oh my God, I was listening to yeah. this. And then straight <laughs> away, you're kind of taken back to that you know uh, what? time period. It, it, was, it was not particularly retro and it was on my iPhone, but that kind of happened
3: to me today. So I was coming home from work in the office and me and my wife share Spotify and I put my Spotify on and it instantly started playing Disney lullaby songs because it was quite late. So I knew she was putting my daughter to bed. So I was like, okay, I can't listen to Spotify, so I'll go on my iTunes. And I started using Spotify about six or seven years ago. So I haven't downloaded a song on iTunes in like seven years. And it was such like a a nostalgic flashback to like my life in my early 20s kind of thing, like what I was listening to then. Uh, So I, I would love to fish out one of my old iPods or
2: something or one of my old MP3 players and see what I was listening to. Mine, really mine was uh full of video game music as well. So yeah. I, had, I had quite a few like game soundtracks in there and stuff. Uh, yeah. And I, and I do like the idea of kind of modifying and stuff, but you know, I just, I just want to keep it going like the streaming or oh, I'm not, I'm not the yeah, what biggest It was that fan. thing.
1: It was um, rock box or something. I remember modding an eye. I- an iPod to run like Linux or something years ago. Yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. And now you can run so. like on the seventh generation, the new ones. You can play Fortnite, so you know. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> still kind of uh, uh, pretty all right for gaming and stuff. But it seems that like Apple just the phone dominates, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely dominates. So they're probably just like, yeah, let's just go with that.
1: The end of an era, though, I mean, you know, that brand just changed the world, didn't it? You know, 21 years ago when that initial iPod landed. You know, just what a revolution. And I think really the company, the product that you could thank for kind of saving Apple and really pushing them to where they are today, really, you know, it was the start of all that, wasn't it, in the early 2000s? Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. For for me, it was really what kind of, like, put Apple in my mind,
3: if that makes sense. Like, you know, before that, it was just, you know, the colourful computers, like geeks used them, and all of a sudden, the iPod came out and it was cool, you know, to have one yeah. and listen to music on the go and stuff like that. Like, especially like from high school and stuff like that. So 100% agree with that.
2: And they, and they totally stole that advertising campaign from Amiga. You know, when they had the like silhouettes and the people listening and dancing, that was like, you know, the Amiga demos back in
1: the days when you had the silhouettes. <laughs> State like, of the art and stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, I mean, there is actually, you can watch on YouTube. Uh, I think it's called Apple Music Event 2001. If you search it on YouTube, you actually see Steve Jobs introducing the first iPod. Such a low-key event. It's literally like in a, in a conference room at Apple's HQ, probably around like 40 people in front of him. You know, massive difference compared to just a few years later up there on stage at like WWDC getting streamed around the world, and yeah. all that kind of thing. So, yeah, the humble beginnings of the iPod are quite interesting to look back on. So if I can track that down, I'll, I'll put that in our show notes as well. And uh, rest in peace iPod. Now, something else that's been around for what feels like forever that um, we're not going to be able to buy anymore is an EA FIFA game because it turns out after almost 30 years, EA is officially ditching the FIFA brand.
3: You say that like the three of us buy FIFA every year? I, I like When get you were it. like, we won't we <laughs> I mean, be able to buy, to buy it. To I, get like it. FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. A lot it. of people do. I, I, I was going to say, I know what you're saying, our listeners. But we don't buy FIFA. But yeah, I... I've read the article and i really, really, really tried to get my head around it. I don't understand what FIFA is. Okay, I just so thought it was the name of the game. So, so FIFA
2: I don't... is like the governing board of football. Right. right. Okay, so, that, thank you. That so kind of, of, of makes sense now to me. So EA, who has the EA Sports division, has to buy all the licensing for the mm-hmm. club names, for every single player to have them in the likeness for the players as well, you know, like all their faces, all of this, all of that branding is like done through FIFA. And it's
3: all licensed to FIFA.
2: Yeah. And it always has been. And that's been like back in the days when you had games like sensible soccer and stuff, people would, uh, you know, just put made up teams in, but also they would put teams in and there wouldn't be like, you know, the strictness about it and the chance of getting sued and stuff. But, Mm. but now it's all FIFA. And they basically had the renewal of the license. So the renewal of this license and FIFA wanted more than double the amount of money for it. Yeah. And a billion dollars apparently for
1: a one world cup cycle, which is four years. Yeah. Yeah. So So to have the rights to the world
2: cup and all of those Mm -hmm. kind of teams and stuff. And uh, uh, EA decided, no, we're going to go separately. And I guess they're going to kind of go and say we're EA and uh, you know, do, do we have permission to have your team on there or sort the licensing themselves and, mm. and start their own sports game, which will pretty much probably be exactly the same engine and stuff, um yeah so EA the- Sports FC. But the problem is that FIFA, is, it. they started adding all these crazy stuff like NFTs and all of this. But we're the retro hour, so we're going to talk about like the retro FIFA <laughs> and stuff. And, <laughs> and like... My memory of it was there were lots of little games of like MicroPro Soccer. There was um, Sensible World of Soccer. There was Kickoff. There was uh, ISS Pro, which was another one, International Superstar Soccer. And they all got destroyed by FIFA. FIFA ended up dominating, and it was just that continual release, constant release, constant upgrading of the technology. It was kind of like GTA. You know how GTA just kind of upgraded with the with the technology and and the style and uh, I I just remember it as like when I was a kid we'd be playing FIFA and there was this one one version I think it was FIFA 96 or something and it was uh basically the, the the referee could only give you a red card if he actually came to you
3: I've yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I've played that one. He, he can only give you a red car if he if he catches you, and you can just yeah. run around forever, can't you? <laughs> yeah,
2: and he's just chasing you.
3: <laughs> I love it. For, for me, you see, the last football game I played was Italia '90, the Mega
2: Drive.
3: So that's like how wow. how
2: out of touch I am
3: with it. Yeah, um, that
2: that would be one that kind of got got destroyed. There was yeah, yeah. Pro Evo as well later on and stuff. You know, yeah,
1: Pro- yeah. Because I remember playing FIFA on my friend's Mega Drives at school mm. and I'd completely forgotten them I mean, when I was kind of looking at the old FIFA games when the story came up. I forgot that FIFA came out on the Amiga.
2: Yeah, yeah, it came out yeah. on the uh, Amiga on the consoles. It was it was an EA thing, you know, EA were, were, were with the Amiga, you know, um,
1: uh, back in the day. So, yeah. It's, and I was watching a video of it, and it's kind of like, cause they're all that kind of um, isometric kind of side-on view, weren't they? That's what made it different from a lot of the overhead football games. Yeah. You know, like a uh, kickoff and... It, it was the realism. The it was always
2: the realism yeah. that they'd go for, where something like sensible soccer, you know, that's fun. You know, that's about fun, speed, and kind of tactics. But FIFA was like the realism, and that that did kind of suck at some points, and it did suck with some upgrades, but... Later on they just they just pumped money into it and they, they managed to grab the whole audience until it became a, a real kind of cult thing.
4: Well, I
3: remember in the two thousands, you know, with my friends at school and stuff, it was it was always like, Are you gonna get FIFA or are you gonna get Pro Evo? you know, on like PS two hmm. and stuff like that. But now I don't even hear anything about Pro Evo. I just I don't even know if they're still going. It is literally just fever, FIFA, FIFA is fever. Yeah. It is literally just FIFA is the, <laughs> the dominant like sports game, you know, when I think it's guy. just
2: literally left loads of like dead, dead football brands. IPs, and stuff, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. And, I mean, and like I mean, just looking at the list of platforms it's been on, it's like it was on the Gizmondo, it was on the N Gage, oh, wow. uh, there was a DOS version, uh, GameCube 3DO one, was Saturn, it. yeah, um, Java. So, <laughs> I, I know we're going off a tangent
3: here, we're going more into football than retro, but if there's now going to be EA Sports FC. How are they going to buy the rights if they're not doing it? Or do they just buy the rights through FIFA?
2: Still? You know what I think FIFA are going to do. I think they're just going to go to another developer.
1: To They've already said they are. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so then, it, then there's already been a bit of a then war going. That's going, going on. to be
2: the new war,
3: which will be yeah. the uh, EA Sports yeah. FC versus yeah. FIFA.
1: Yeah, well, they said the other day, one of the. I can't remember who it was, but there was a spokesperson from FIFA who said uh, there will be a new FIFA game coming out. I think they're trying to find like a new studio to make it, and that will be the official FIFA game, he was saying. Um, a lot of comments saying, you know, that they're, they wonder who they're going to get to do it. Um, it could turn out to be really bad, but. Yeah, And, so. and it's
2: such huge news that I was sitting there yeah. watching the news at 10, and the news at 10 suddenly went, FIFA brand is over. I was like, what? This is a main. Kind on of a new story but i guess it's so big and so mm. significant you know mm. uh but yeah i can i can see them totally going to uh, epic games or someone and creating uh, a new fifa that's all licensed or yeah
1: i remember playing like i said on the mega drive i think the last version that you know i could actually probably play a fifa was on the 3do Um after that i just yeah i mean I go around friends' houses and they've never got a PlayStation Five, and they'll be like, "Oh, do you, want, do you want to play FIFA?" And I'm like, oh, "If we have to, because I'm not into football." Um, but I, I don't, I don't know who who I am on the screen. I'm looking, I'm like, "Which one am I then?" I, it kind of got a bit. One of the PS3
3: Fifas I played um, at like pre-drinks in like 2013, and yeah. my friend beat me like 40 nil, like, <laughs> and I, I was like, "I don't even know what I'm doing," and like they all thought it was the funniest thing ever oh, Joe the gamer and I'm just like I don't even know which one I am
2: on the screen. Like <laughs> I handed me the controller and it. not told me. <laughs> I've played it quite a bit, um, the recent ones as well, and all of the new ones because I I I, I kind of learned yeah, the new yeah. game. Were you playing uh, it on
3: Stadia? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah.
2: playing the new one, and the, the problem with it is, as with many games at the moment, pay to win, NFTs, digital products that you can buy, Um, that all kind of makes it a bit unfair. And I really didn't like the way that it was going. And you get that with so many franchises nowadays where, uh, you know, you can spend all this extra money and earn books and dollars and all of this stuff. And yeah, it just wasn't wasn't my kind of game. I'd play it solo. I wouldn't connect with anyone online. Mm. <laughs> I'd, you know, just stay in my own world away from all of that kind of stuff.
1: Stick to the Mega Drive version, rather. Yeah, exactly.
2: You can't get a, a, a pay to win on a cartridge.
1: You know what it does mean, though, now that there's going to be no more EA FIFA games? Does that mean, like, charity shops are suddenly going to run out of games in, like, 10 years?
2: (laughs) Run out of FIFA games, (laughs) which are dusty on the shelves, maybe. They'll be using it as, like, roofing and stuff.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I've tiled my house with old uh, FIFA 2009 for the Xbox (laughs) 360.
2: Because there were so many versions. It came out every year and every 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 console. Do you remember FIFA Street as well, which was another one that they did on the um, Yeah, yeah. I think that was on the Dreamcast and they had a the whole like street football thing and they tried
3: I think to it was totally... PS2 as well yeah I remember yeah, all totally that yeah totally tried Cube to change stuff. it yeah
1: yeah it was definitely, I mean, there's not many, I can't think of any other franchises in, you know, video games history that's been on that many platforms and has lasted that long, you know, 30 years. That's incredible. So uh, big change coming up in football games. So we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that story. And uh, if you want to check out this article um, reminiscing on some of the classic ones on Euro, Eurogamer, I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, I need to talk about this amazing new version of Portal for the Nintendo 64 and Wolfenstein 3D's 30th anniversary edition, which looks really cool. And, of course, our special guest, Tony Warren, on the way soon. Before we do that, just a quick message to say, if you enjoy what we do on the Retro Hour podcast each week, could you find it in your heart just to throw a few quid, a few dollars, a few euros into the tip jar and help us pay the bills because we do have a patron that really, as we've said before, is the lifeblood of this podcast. Totally, it's a uh, it's
2: it's a great friendship group as well. You know, we uh, we were just talking about Discord earlier, and we have a great uh, backers chat section in there, and uh, you know, we have the patron meetups as well, where we all get to talk to each other and kind of share knowledge and also kind of. Share interesting things that people have found. And uh we've also got the After Hours podcast as well, which we decided to do a new one. And I, I can't, Dan mentioned this, and I can't believe that we haven't actually covered this in the After Hours.
1: Yeah, we're doing a Nintendo 64 special. So um, I'm, I'm, chose, like, <laughs> I,
3: I, I I'm literally like, yeah, I'm like licking my lips to that. It's like, I can I talk <laughs> about N64 all day. So as soon as Dan suggested it, I was just like, yeah. You know, N64 was such a big part of my childhood and stuff. So, if you want to hear me blabbering on about the N64 for about an hour or two on the uh, the on the After Hours podcast, then definitely this month is a good month to sign up. And you know, how many episodes have we done that of that now? Have, have we twenty three? I was say if we pass twenty now, so you will unlock all twenty three episodes and, and well, twenty four episodes as well.
2: Some of them are like two hours long. They're not just limited to kind of one hour, you know, because uh, we're so passionate about the subjects, you know. So you do get a lot.
1: Yeah, we go through our, like, our top five games on each system as well, don't we? It's always so much fun doing the uh, the system episodes of the After Hours podcast. So if you want to get access to that, if you're a Gold member or above, you get that every month. You also will get invited to our patrons hangout that's coming up this weekend on Sunday when uh, Ravi's back victorious from his DJ battle. You'll be in a celebrated <laughs> mood, I'm sure. okay um, we we'll do- <laughs> probably. Uh, we're doing that this coming Sunday evening from 8pm, so it would be incredible to see you there. You also get the normal podcast ad-free. You get it early some weeks as well, if I can get the editing done in time. Um, you also get extra content in there. We do a few extra stories just for our patrons each week. But really, the reason that you're doing it is just to make sure that we can keep the lights on, keep the bills paid as well, and uh, make sure that a new podcast comes out every single Friday for, you know, what can be as little as a, you know, and it's a cliche in the world of Patreon, but it could be as little as a cost to cost of a cup of coffee you know once a month to help this podcast continue and of course for making a contribution into our Patreon you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and that is Hall of Fame the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and a big thank you to our latest supporters thanks to Tony Davis Shane and Scott and Asbestos Long who all backed us on Patreon. And if you'd like to find your place in the Hall of Fame, all the details to sign up to our Patreon are on our website at theretrohour.com. Someone actually asked if you sang that jingle live yeah, every week. So I, I they, got Adam? a
2: message from uh, Adam being my friend, and he said, uh, I think you're singing Hall of Fame live on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm not every time. That's pre-recorded. And I think Asbestos Long might be my friend Bruce Asbestos,
1: who's an artist oh, and uh, pretty awesome dude. I do find, my, I find myself the other day after I edited last week's show, it's in the kitchen going, Hall of Fame! I say, you get stuck in your head, Revan. <laughs> right, then, a few more stories to get into this week. Now, this one I thought was really cool and something that I'm desperate to play, actually. Someone's done a version of Portal that looks pretty playable, actually, for the N64. This looks
3: really, really cool. So it is just kind of, not even a demo at the moment. At the moment, it's just kind of like a... Um just a uh, a project video. Proof you know, kind of concept. Of like a proof yeah, of concept yeah. video. Yeah, thank you for that, Ravi. Um, so this comes from a programmer, James Lambert, um, who has been essentially porting Portal to the N64. Um, but what I really want to make clear and what he wants to really stress and make clear is this isn't like a retro version of Portal that looks like an N64 version. This is actually running on n64 hardware like he is developing it on n64 like you know programming software and then running it on the n64 um so at the moment it's you know not playable for the public or anything like that but like i say proof of concept it looks really 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 cool and it is it's it's clearly portal and you know the first thing that he wanted to do is you know on the video is he made it clear there's no sound effects in there there isn't even any animation on you firing the portal gun. It is literally, you just fire it, you just pro- pull the trigger and it just appears, the portal on the wall. But the reason it's like that is, is it was just he wanted to see if he could actually get the portal engine to work. Because obviously he's mm. he's built this engine from the ground up. He has built the engine himself. He's not using like Mario 64's engine or you know Banjo-Kazooie's or anything like that. He's had to build the engine from scratch and essentially... He wanted to just see if the technology would work like that. If he, you know, walks through the portal, it will work like it does in the, you know, the modern. I say modern, but in the 2007 PC Xbox 360 game, um, and it did. And not only did he get it working, he also got it so that when you look through the portal without going through it, you do see, you know, how you would in the original game. Like you see into the room. So if you put the portal in front of you and then behind you, you would see, you would see the character. Kind of thing. he's actually got that all working, which is really good. At the moment, he's got and he can do
1: it four four levels deep, four levels As well, deep, which I is was amazing. Say, yeah, it's yeah. limited
3: to four levels deep at the moment. Um, so, he, which is a lot, which is a lot. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's you know said that he's definitely going to carry on with it yeah. and carry on making it. Um, so I'll be really interested to see, you know, if he can get it because in the actual original game, when you shoot the portal, the portal like starts off small and it grows bigger, like you know, really quickly. So it'd be really interesting if he can get it like that and stuff, but. You know, it looks good as well. It looks like a really nice N64 game. So um, really, really cool
1: one to keep an eye on. Yeah, because I remember being obsessed with that when I got it in um, Orange Box on the 360. It's one of those games that when you kind of figure out, I think I booted it once and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I turned it off. Then another time, I kept hearing how good it was. And when I got into it though, I was completely hooked on that game. I, I,
2: Great story. I hook. love the music, but even the mention of the word portal makes me motion sick. And, like, <laughs> the, <laughs> the idea of it on the N64 is like, oh, God. <laughs> Just with the lower frame rate and stuff. Oh, God, yeah.
1: You know, it's quite interesting because um, Charles Goddard, who was one of the you know programmers at Nintendo back in the day, um, Nintendo legend, really, um, and he mentioned that when they were putting together Ocarina of Time, they actually did like a tech demo of a uh, portals then, mm. you know, obviously back in the in the late nineties. So you know, it is something that uh, the the N sixty four was kind of always capable of, I guess. But yeah, this looks really cool, and I mean, it's just something that I hope it kind of develops into a more fully featured game that we can download and play on the N sixty four. Because didn't you think about it, at its heart, I guess Portal is a pretty simplistic puzzle game, really, isn't it? You know, it's um, but there's a physics and everything that makes it, I guess, complicated to do on classic hardware I
3: was going to say there, there is that really good video on YouTube by that guy Dan Wood who goes on about how the N64 was actually a powerhouse there you go a little plug for Super you supercomputer supercomputer yeah. so you know it doesn't surprise me that it can do it and you know that other developers have kind of reached out and said you know you know like you say doing it on Ocarina of Time and stuff like that to see if it works so it's it's cool that it'll do it but it's just it is interesting to see if he gets a full kind of game going or if it's just like one level do you know what I mean?
2: He's said that he's going to have to reduce the amount of portals that you can do but I reckon that would probably lead to some redesigns of levels or maybe Mm. using the simpler levels or like the ones with the less amount of stuff in there and using other dynamics Uh,
3: yeah I think what we might end up with in the end is like a 6 level or 10 level like simple kind of like mode like you know he won't necessarily port the levels from original game he will just make some small levels himself maybe i think that's what will happen i can't see it being a full port in the end just because of it won't it it just i just can't see it running or fitting do you know what i mean i mean obviously it'll be on Mm. like an everdrive or on on a rom or something but you know for it to actually run on n64 hardware is is it's going to be a tough tough drop but also a massive labor
1: of love you know what though as well because i mean i I love portal one and portal two and it's made me realize in this you know We haven't had a new Portal game for 11 years now. Which isn't that such a big series, it kind of feels like it's long overdue, like Portal 3 or something. it's
3: it's the whole Valve can't count to three thing, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it it is good for Portal fans to have something new to play though, so hopefully we'll uh, we'll see this coming out for the N64. Um, A game that celebrated a big anniversary this month, and uh, obviously a legendary game. Talk about industry changes. Wolfenstein 3D. Celebrate its 30th anniversary on May the 5th when that game first came out back in 1992. I remember seeing that. I mean, you know, I've talked about how I used to randomly go to Ryman's The Stationers, a stationery shop, to see all the cutting edge new PC games, quite bizarrely back in the day. Um, I do remember playing Wolfenstein in there, though, and Doom, and just being blown away at that game when I first saw it. But now, 30 years later, some fans have actually made a 30th anniversary edition of Wolfenstein 3D yeah this this edition
2: looks uh pretty good actually because it's it's supported on dos so um mm. you know you're going old school but it's also supported on sdl and uh sdl that if you don't know about it is simple direct media layer and uh it basically means that it can be worked on different hardware and operating systems so amiga os supports it um later versions and uh the kind of power PC ones a Riscos, Haiku, uh, Linux. So, you know, there's a, a lot of options uh, for this. And uh, I think it's quite cool, these mods being
1: released and, like, uh, a lot of extra content. Yeah, I mean, they've actually done. I mean, it's a fan-made, unofficial expansion pack for Wolfenstein 3D. So they've got 30 new levels in here, which is massive. Um, Ten levels in each new episode. Two new guns in there as well. Um, and also, I think this is quite a useful feature they've put in the game too, an auto-map for orientation purposes. Because I'd often find that with, because, you know, Wolfenstein is very much a maze game, isn't it? And Mm. I don't know whether it's just the way my brain works, but whenever I play games that involve mazes, I generally end up getting lost and getting really annoyed at myself.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I get lost with a map even in the early Doom games. So I don't know if one on Wolfenstein 3D would help me that much, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, the problem
2: with Wolfenstein is a lot of, Levels look very similar. <laughs> and well, there's all the secret
3: doors and stuff like that in it as well. But, I mean, if you get to blow away Hitler, I'm sold. <laughs> Robot Hitler. <Rock> Mecha <laughs> Hitler, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, I
2: think he was removed in some versions, but then... In other yeah. ones, uh, he was allowed. So he's, pro- he's going to be in this one because it's a yeah, mod, gotta it? so it? Yeah, got to be.
1: It's got to be. So uh, this looks loads of fun, and it's just dropped now as well, so you can download it for free. And only nine only 961 people have downloaded this so far, so uh, get on this. I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat this week with Tony Warner, the co-founder of Revolution Software, talking about some classic adventure games, let's give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, obviously, we've all got our phones with us at all time, and don't know about you, you know, my, my iPhone is by far my most used computer, my most used internet device. The scary thing is that we all know this, you know, deep down, that your phone collects so much data, your phone carrier can record all this as well and spy on whatever you're doing. And, you know, some carriers like Verizon in America have even admitted that they're doing this. They say it's so they can get a better understanding of your interests, but in reality, we know what they're doing. They're collecting this to sell to advertisers. So, I mean, not everyone's comfortable with that. You know, some people don't mind. But thing is, if you want stuff like, you know, the sites you visit and what you've been up to online to be your personal business, then why don't you check this out, ExpressVPN. Now, Ravi, I mean, you're our resident, you know, privacy advocate. You have been as long as I've known you. And ExpressVPN is a service that you've used for as long as I've known you as well. Oh, totally. Like this,
2: it was essential. I recently went on a holiday uh, to America for a month. And um, before I could get my kind of contract sorted, I was connecting to so many Wi-Fi networks in airports, random hotels, uh, totally unsecure places, really, just to get that kind of connection and get some data. And uh, mm. every time I went there, you know, I, I fired up Express VPN and uh, I knew that I'd kind of be safe. And, uh, yeah, it's it's really awesome. It's really fast as well. Really simple to have on all your devices. So I had it on my laptop had it on my phone as well. And uh, yeah, just a really great service. Yeah,
1: and it's dead easy to use as well, isn't it? Literally oh, tap a button. So simple. 20%. You just yeah.
2: select the country you want to be and connect. And I could also
1: watch stuff from the UK whilst I was in America at a really fast speed. Yeah, now not only do they shield your web browsing, but ExpressVPN protects and encrypts all of your network data so you can stay private, even when using apps on your phone as well, whether it's, you know, iPhone, Android, even a tablet user as well. ExpressVPN works on all your devices. The best part is one subscription can be used on up to five devices at the same time. So you can get, you know, the whole family on ExpressVPN. So why don't you do this? If you're sick of companies, you know, tracking you and invading your privacy, Have a look at expressvpn.com slash retro. Use a VPN that we trust, expressvpn.com slash retro. Take back your online privacy and tell you what, if you use our link, not only will you be supporting the podcast, but also we'll give you three months free extra on top of a one-year plan as well. So that's expressvpn.com slash retro. And a massive thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support. Right, next time we're going to get some incredible stories from our special guest, co-founder of the legendary Revolution Software, Tony Warner. Next on the Retro Hour podcast.
0: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them.
2: Software engineers?
0: Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. Found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event when we welcome on our very special guest. And today, I'm so excited to get some stories about Revolution Software, companies like Paragon Programming, Stuff like Warhawk, Deathstalker, Beneath a Steel Sky. I love that game back in the day. With the co-founder of Revolution Software, let's welcome on Tony Warren. How are you doing, Tony? Hey, not bad, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us. Now, uh, before we get into those stories about these incredible companies that you've worked for, um, and also, you know, your own book that you're working on at the moment, that I, I hope we can announce and maybe give that a bit, of a bit of a plug at the end of the interview as well. It's always quite interesting to kind of go back to the start of our guests kind of careers and you know what got them interested initially in the video games industry i mean do you remember when you first saw a video game what first got your interest started
4: uh yeah absolutely i mean it was a, a zx81 uh, a friend of mine got and uh, you know we were all we we're all sort of playing with electronics you know building rad- crystal radios and stuff like that which was kind of whatever it was late 70s you know and uh, suddenly the zx81 popped up and uh, it I mean, I, I didn't quite understand what it was because you couldn't really, you know, you saw these adverts that started appearing, and it, was it a business thing or was it like um, a sort of a home hobby type? No, no one was quite sure what it was because we'd never seen a computer before. But a friend of mine got one, and uh, I sort of pedalled over and had a look at it, and, and it was like mind blowing. You know, this this thing, it, it just did all sorts of different things, and you could you could make your own thing, you make your own programs. It was just mind blowing because it was it was just so much more dynamic than than. The electronic type things we were playing with so you know from that moment on i was totally hooked
2: i was wondering like was was that your very first experience of programming then and like um uh, what other stuff were your peers doing at the time
4: well as you say i mean i mean i was looking at electronics um as something that could be could be you know interesting and you know building something seemed quite exciting but electronics was hard you know you you'd, you'd You'd get these kit things and you'd you'd spend ages building it and then it wouldn't work because you didn't have quite the right parts you know it, it was just it was just difficult with electronics but uh programming seemed much more interesting because you you know you couldn't break it you could you'd type some lines in and it didn't work but that was just a book and you, you edited it and fixed it and uh, then it iterated and iterated and uh, you, you know it, it was so much more dynamic than uh, than electronics so uh, i mean first time I did that was was on my friend's ZX81 and then I think we found some BBC micros at school. They were like hidden. School didn't know what to do with them, so they hid them away in store cupboards and we found a couple of those and used to lock around on them at lunchtime, you know. So I did a lot of BBC BASIC.
1: Was that the time when the um, the education program was on and just every school was getting BBC micros? Yeah,
4: exactly. Computer studies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they they were terrified of these machines because no one knew what to do with them. You know, they they gave them to the maths teachers and said, "Right, you it, it must be maths. So you, you guys are in charge of computer studies." You know, uh, and a few a few of us kids like, like myself. I mean, we knew a lot more than the teachers did, and it, it, that terrified them even more. You know
2: well i remember you mentioned those small kits so there, there were quite a few of them around i used to have like an electronics kit when I was a kid but i remember the radios were, were a huge little thing as well did anybody have like kit computers
4: as well or was it all
2: kind of just just the uh made ones
4: you could actually buy uh, i mean i never saw I, I didn't see one or know anybody who who did it but you could get a zx81 in kit form and 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 literally solder it together yourself, and it was like I don't know five quid cheaper or something. You know, you see them occasionally on eBay in kit form, still you know, unmade. Which which, and they're expensive now, of course, because people people probably did make them, you know, and screw them up or whatever. So to to find an unmade ZX eighty one kit on and, and probably the ZX eighty as well, um, you, you see them occasionally. So I mean, some people made them. Yeah.
1: Did you find that most people were buying them to? Learn programming, or was it a case of, uh, I just want a computer, so I'll buy one, then figure out what to do with it later?
4: I, I think, I think the kids were going, you know, they'd, they'd say to your dad, uh, you know, I can, I can learn to program on it. And, and what you what really meant was, I'll, I'll, I'll get into games and play some games on it. Uh, he, you know, people, a lot of my friends, they, they, we all started programming and, and made a bit of progress. And, and I kind of went a bit further and, and learned that assembly code and stuff. And that's where you got serious about it. Uh, and, most of my friends, they kind of veered off and just, just ended up playing games, you know.
2: Well, you also had an interesting system. Um, it's called a, a Computer's Links. Um, yeah. We, we'd never actually heard of that before, and it, it seems like it was a kind of British micro. Can you tell us about that and, like, what was available for it and, and what kind of stuff did you do on it?
4: Well, you see, my friend had the Sertix 81, and then... The and I started to say and I just I think I just missed Christmas this was the thing so I was like 12 or something or 13 and I just missed Christmas so I started saving up uh, and I was going to get a ZX81 and I think the ZX Spectrum came out and then and then I thought oh it's a bit more expensive but it's so much better so I switched to saving it for a ZX Spectrum and then and then this other thing called the called the Lynx started started appearing in advertising uh, and I and I I read some stuff about it, and I thought this might actually be better for programming because it had um, it had a, a thing called a machine code monitor, which I didn't really understand what it was, but it, it was a program that just slightly helped you mess about with assembly stuff. So I kind of thought, ah, oh, this this would be better, and I quite liked the spec on it, and it it had uh, you know it was a Z eighty processor, like like the Sinclair machines, which I which I figured was the one to go for. And, and it had a proper keyboard, and I thought I just like the look of it, and I like the advertising, so I kind of switched and, and started saving it for that instead. Because it wasn't these machines; they weren't actually too expensive, surprisingly enough. I mean, it was a couple of hundred quid, but and the spectrum was like 180 a 48k spectrum, 180 quid, something like that. So it didn't seem that much more to um, to keep on saving, you know. I mean, it was a lot of it was a lot of paper rounds, but it seemed like a thing to do, and I I often. Go for slightly strange, offbeat decisions and and uh, choices. So the, the links, I mean, the links seem like a like an interesting alternative way to go, you know. But it, it it turned out to be a disaster because they they they. I mean, they raised some money and they designed what was a pretty nice machine. I mean, it did everything it was meant to do, uh, and I really liked it. But I it, think it, they made like six thousand of them and then went bankrupt.
2: Yeah, it's pretty mad. I've never I've never really heard of it before, but the basic was much better on there and faster and it was a a higher resolution as well
4: it it was funny yeah i mean there there was the only problem with it was uh, there was something about the screen refresh that made it a bit slower than a bit slower than you'd want it to be so it wasn't actually perfect but you, you could write a decent game on it uh you know sprites and stuff you could do i mean it wasn't it wasn't much more powerful than the Spectrum, in truth, but it was, you know, the keyboard was a lot better. It didn't have that funny keyword system that Sinclair liked, so I, I think it was more, you know, you, it was more practical in some ways. You could you could get into it a lot better. So I, you know, it, it, it was good to have, but um, it, it didn't last. Certainly, there was like two games for it. I think <laughs> there was a there was a <laughs> there was a, a Pac Man game which uh, which I've still got the cassette for, uh, but uh, you know, not much else.
1: Was that why you decided you wanted to make your own games then? Just a lack of software or what kind of got your interest there to start programming games yourself?
4: It's just, just I don't know, I just like making things. And, it, you, you know, the possibility was quite exciting. You, you, you could do anything. You, you could write any game and, and it was just it just appealed. You know, it was just, it was just, uh, it was just cool. And, and then, you know, you, you started reading magazines like Crash and Zap. And, and in those early years, in the 80s, uh, it it was it was absolutely amazing because every month someone would make a, a major breakthrough in terms of tech and um, gameplay on the spectrum. You know, like people like Ultimate Play the game and um, Gargoyle Games, and you know all those guys. That every, every month it, the games would get better, and it was just it was just totally exciting. You know, you just you just couldn't believe what was what was coming out, and, and just to be part of that, the idea that you might yourself come up with something great was. Um, it was just so much more exciting than, than, than the rest of the world, you know, if you see what I mean.
1: I read that your first game was um, Obsidian. And I read that, is this rumour really true that you actually suffered a bit at school in terms of your studies because um, you were working too much on that game instead of revising for exams? Uh,
4: it's absolutely true, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a story often told, but, um, uh, I mean, I'd fallen out with school in a, in a big, big way. So, I mean, they, they blocked me from doing com- the computer course that we, that we spoke about earlier, because they, I mean, I, I I was not a good student at school. I didn't I didn't really um, excel in any way, and I was I was like bottom bottom set on pretty much everything. Um, so you know they they found a way to block me from doing a computer studies course. So I just thought, well, I, I you know I'm looking at the magazines and saying, look at all these games. I I reckon I can do this. So why do I need to go through all this school stuff? You know, why don't I just forget about all that and write write games instead? You know kind of a bold move really but it, it, it's paid off i suppose because i'm still doing it what 40 years later so uh, I, d- I didn't really didn't really miss those o levels that i failed
2: well how did you end up like meeting charles and uh and getting involved with uh arctic uh
4: well i i mean i i switched once the once the links had gone down i, I then saved up again and got a uh an amstrad cpc 464 which was um Ultra perfect, you know. It was it, it was amazing because it solved all the problems with um, screens and and graphics, and it was a lovely machine. And then it, and then disk drives came out for it, so you could seriously, you know, you could much more seriously develop stuff and, and not have to save things on tape and go through all the disasters that that would entail. So you, you could really get into programming properly on the Amstrad. So you know, this was like nineteen eighty five, I suppose, and uh, I just started writing this game. Uh, while the exams were on, and finished it sort of some, in the late summer, and then uh, you know th- the, what you did was you, you you made a made your demo and you put it onto a load of cassettes and sent it off to all the publishers. Uh, my mother looked through the the, the local yellow pages and, and saw that there was a, a company called Arctic, which was about twenty miles away from where we were. So she she said, "Well, send it to these guys because if they're looking for people, you might you might go work there," you know. Which is exactly what happened. So, I mean, I posted it off to to, to Arctic, and uh, I, I got a letter back a few days later from uh, this guy Charles Cecil. He said, "Come and come and have a chat to us because we like the game." And the rest is history.
1: Well, what was the um, relationship with Firebird and Arctic? And how they worked together?
4: And I mean, not initially, it was it was it was very much an Arctic game. Uh, and then I suppose towards the end, I mean, Arctic didn't Arctic was in a kind of. Difficult. I mean, it, it had had a lot of success in the earlier '80s, the Spectrum stuff, and then it started to suffer a bit towards the mid to late '80s. Uh, kind of the time that I was there, really, um, it was starting to go down. And, and they were kind of hoping Obsidian would would pull them out of the hole, and it didn't quite really. Uh, and we wrote another game in there called Ultima Ratio, and we did that was an Arctic that was an Arctic production. And then I guess they started licensing stuff out just to try and raise money towards the end. But there was a lot of weird things going on. Uh, and and Charles said, "I have had I've had enough of this." And, and he formed Paragon Programming, which which the task, the task for that company was going to be to do porting work for US Gold and people like that. And uh, he said, "Come and work for this company." So me and the other guys there, we all we all jumped ship from Arctic and, and went to work for, for Paragon. I was going to say when um. Charles kind of went off and started working
2: with US Gold uh, uh, under Paragon. Did you kind of see this as like, right, US Gold, they're bringing in big titles. Uh, This is going to be a a good kind of partnership for the future in Paragon. Yeah, well, it was
4: just something to do, really. My idea was always to write original games, but we we weren't really sure what, what to do. Uh, and Charles said, "Look, this is this is a good opportunity, and, and we'll, we'll earn some money doing this, and then we can we can think about originals when we've when we've got some money in the bank, you know." So we we did we did like uh, I think I probably did two two or three games at, at Paragon, and, uh, and it, it was actually doing pretty well, but too well in a way because US Gold then turned around and said, "Well, Charles, you know you're doing all our you're doing all our ports for us. Why don't you come and actually be." Be development manager in, in in Birmingham and and run the show, you know. So you know, he, Charles said yeah, that's not a bad idea. So he, he went off to US Gold, and uh, I I sort of was was left kind of scratching my head a little bit. So I uh, and that company was down in London, so I, I uh, trained it back to Hull and, and embarked on a bit of freelance work for a while.
2: And uh, that's where you started, like doing Deathstalker as well, which um, yeah, amazingly had uh, David Whittaker as well on board uh, doing music.
4: Yeah, well, I mean that. That again, we just we just me, me and my pal uh, Adam Waring, who was who was previously at Arctic. You know, we just we just sat in a in in a, in a flat in Hull and wrote a game each. And, uh, I did Dev Stalker, he did uh, Ninja Massacre, and we we wrote them in what four or five months, I suppose, maybe less than that made a demo tape and sent them off to Codemasters, we thought was the right place. And and sure enough, they they accepted both games. So then we were were just like working for Codemasters. And they were pretty cool and pretty interesting.
1: Well, what drew you to um, the Amstrad? And why did you think that was such a good machine?
4: Well, mostly because of the chip it used, to be honest. It was Z80. So it it looked like a super spectrum, you know. And we kind of thought, well, you know, we've been burnt a little bit with these other machines that have gone down. But Amstrad seemed Pretty kind of bullish about everything, so it seemed like a safe bet. And the way you, the way you got a monitor, a really nice monitor with it, and, and the floppy disks were coming for it, and it, it kind of ticked all the boxes. You know, I, I kind of thought it was a safe bet. I mean, it, it, in truth, it, it did well for a couple of years, and then it, it was tw- it was a little bit too late. You know, like sixteen bits were starting to starting to be talked about as the Amstrad got going. I mean, it, if if that machine had been two years earlier it could have been a it could have been a massive success you know but uh, i mean it did all right but it it was never it was never spectrum sized you know but it was a great machine absolutely great machine
2: what was the uh kind of process of porting then so you know you did Stalker for the spectrum and the amstrad was there a a kind of way of porting the code over or was it kind of a total redo for each platform
4: uh well what what i had was because Prior to this, somewhere, somewhere sliced in the middle of all this that we've talked about, I worked for a little bit for a company called Cascade in Harrogate, and we and there we did uh, a game called Nineteen Bootcamp. I don't know if you remember the song Nineteen?
1: Yeah, Paul Hardcastle.
4: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so <laughs> DJ career. credentials coming through, paid <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> up. It, it was quite a funny song actually, but it was like number one for, for like six months or something. Yeah. But but Cascade had done, I mean, Cascade had done this thing called. Um, fifty-game cassette, and and earned a fortune from it. Like the boss was driving a Porsche and all this sort of thing, and they and they had this company at Cascade in Aragat, and, and I got a job there in, like instantly, um, having gone to see them. And it's a bit convoluted. We we did this thing, we did the Deathstalker things, and then all that blew apart. So then I went to work for um, I went to work for Cascade, and, and what we found there was uh, they were using a system called PDS, which was. You get a a very early Amstrad PC, uh, like a, an eighty eighty six based thing, uh, an Amstrad sixteen forty it was, and uh, and it had a hard drive which was which was like astonishing. I'd never never seen a hard drive before, and it had a, a but it's basically there was a board inside the PC that in a ribbon cable that went into the back of a spectrum or an amstrad and you would write your you'd write your code on an on on the, the assembler program press a button and it would shoot it down into the amstrad or the spectrum and in, in like half a second your, your game would be running it was an absolutely brilliant system there was all sorts of wild things happening at um at cascade and the whole thing blew it blew apart but i uh, in order to finish the game uh, i said to them look uh, Give me give me a couple of development kits and I'll and I'll finish the work and um, then we'll all go our separate ways. So I, I finished this game for them but and I came out of it with two dev kits and um, that's what we used to write um, Dev Stalker and um, Ninja Massacre and uh, it, yeah, I mean it was it was largely the same code to be honest. I mean you had you know spec, Spectrum had a different screen adre- screen and kind of input methods but the, the games were largely the same thing slightly different graphics but it wasn't too difficult to to make the same game work on both machines he so i don't remember a problem i don't remember it ever being difficult you know
2: we, we we interviewed the olivers and you know they were doing uh yeah. master stuff and they they said they used kind of exactly the same method yeah of uh, kind of firing it down so maybe it was like standardized in that
4: um part of the
2: industry then
4: uh yeah i mean anybody seriously writing writing commodore 64 or spectrum uh was using pds there were a lot of um pirating of those boards as well there was a lot of dodgy uh, dodgy pds systems floating around i think uh, including a few few that i came across um because they were too expensive basically so you, you you people were building their own boards you know but it, it, again that was a great system and i've not i've not since worked on a system that was as as, as good to use as PDS because it was so fast.
1: You know when you're doing like porting to different systems? I mean is there kind of obviously advantages and dis- disadvantages of working in machine code? I mean having different processes. I mean what's kind of the process there?
4: Uh, well I mean the, the thing is y- you're either 64 with a two chip or you were you were a Z80 target and if you were Z80 as I was then uh, you know you would you, 95% of your code would be the same for Amstrad or Spectrum, and then you'd, you'd you'd probably have a little thing in the. I honestly can't remember how we did it, but you'd probably have a have some sort of decision point in the code where you would either say this is the Spectrum version or this is the Amstrad version, and if it's the Spectrum one, then this is how you draw a sprite, and if it's just the Amstrad version, then you'd do, you do use this code instead, you know. And you would, you would toggle which the target was, and and um, it would change the program and fire it down, you know. That's that's pretty much it. It, it was pretty simple, really. I was wondering,
2: uh, you did a title called Arcade Trivia Quiz. And that, oh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was an interesting little title. And it also had like a, a kind of questions editor, which is pretty did cool. It? Yeah, like a, <laughs> <laughs> a kind of add-on. Did, did you see any uh, versions that people have made or anything? And what, what's the kind <laughs> of history behind that
4: title? <laughs> the history of that title is quite funny, actually, because that was going to be a Codemasters game. That's where we fell out with Codemasters. They, they, they turned a bit strange because we, we did Stalker and Ninja Massacre and they really liked that those two games and they did quite well with them. And then they didn't really work with us on what we would do next, so we kind of came up with some ideas and they, they, they didn't like them. And then we thought we don't have any money the way it worked was there was no advances and you would you'd write a game and then it would go off to market and it would there'd be quite a gap between you sending off the final master tape and and actually getting any royalties because the the royalties would be every three months and there'd be like two months prepping the the, you know like manufacturing tapes and all of that stuff it's quite a slow process so you know you'd write a game you'd have no money whatsoever you'd write a game send it off it would, they'd say okay that's great we accept it it's going to go off to publishing but you know you wouldn't see any money for four five months something like that so we were all absolutely skinned with our dev kits and and, and uh wondering what to do next so we thought ah, it, we'll do it we'll do one of these pub trivia because there was like, these machines in the pubs where you'd play the trivia questions like like trivia pursuit but on a on a arcade machine type thing We'd play, we'd been playing these things in, down the pub. And we thought, why don't we just do one of those? And it, it'll be it'll be so easy because all you need is questions, and then the, the front end is like super simple. Uh, there'd be nothing to it, you know. It'll be it'll be uh, we can do it in a in a week or something, you know. <laughs> so we so we had this brilliant idea. And first of all, we couldn't sell it to Codemasters. and then and then they backtracked slightly on on the whole thing and decided it was their idea, and that we couldn't do it. So we all fell out basically. Uh, oh, and they wow. they did their own. If you look at Codemaster's back catalogue, they actually did their own version, which is what they threatened they would do. It was all very strange. We couldn't understand why they why they didn't just get us to do it. So the, there's actually there's two versions. The one we did, which went to Zeppelin Games up in Newcastle, and, and their version as well, I think. And they did a Fruit Machine one as well. So they did a pub trivia because everything was simulator in the in those everything was a simulator yeah. at Codemasters so they did a, a pub trivia simulator, I think, and a fruit machine simulator, and, and we did hours that, that went to Zeppelin. But once it went out, I mean that that was the end of it. I never, I never got a penny for it. I don't think. I don't think they sold any either. I mean, you never see it on on eBay or anything. I think I have a copy, but that's that's as far as it goes.
1: <laughs> might be really rare now. It might be worth a lot on eBay.
4: It might be, yeah. <laughs>
1: Well,
2: like, I heard that you, you guys um, looked at some Sierra titles before, and uh, w- what did you kind of think of those Sierra games?
4: Yeah, well, Charles said, come and come let's get together, you know, and I'll tell you what it's about when we get there. So uh, two, two of us from, from Bytron, this company, was called the the Aeronautics people. We basically didn't know what Charles wanted, but, you know, we thought, we'll, we'll see we'll see what he has to say. So we... we Drove up to the very northern tip of North Wales where where Charles's family has this little cottage thing. And we met there, and Charles had a PC loaded from his car. And he said, Look at these. And uh, they were, we had Leisure Suit Larry and a King's Quest game. And we spent spent like a day playing those games. And and Charles was saying, uh, uh, Down at Activision, you know, we handle the UK publishing for sierra and these games do pretty well could you write the same thing could you you know could you write the engine uh and we looked at it and said uh yeah it looks all right it's just sprites you know and stuff so um we we said yes we can do that so charles said okay go away and think about it and play about with the tech and, and we'll get back together again in a few months and, and see see where we are so you know he he had the uh, you know he had he had an interest in adventures because he'd done uh, like a series of them at Arctic much earlier, like Adventure A, Adventure B, Adventure C. It might have been a D as well. So he, so he, he already had an interest in adventures, but then he saw he saw them again in the in graphic adventure form at um, Activision. And, and obviously he knew all about the market because they, they were selling them so that they had all the intel, you know. So that was where all, all of those things came together. I mean, he knew he knew me that I could program the games and, you know, he knew the market. He had an interest in adventures. So all these things came together and um, that that was basically the beginning of revolution.
1: And well, obviously around that time, I mean, Lucasfilm Games were one of the leaders in adventure games as well, you know, Maniac Mansion, Monkey Island, Loom, games like that. I mean, in terms of like the, you know, the technical side of it and the, the way the games worked, For a couple of years, it felt like they were still kind of figuring out how to do user interfaces and that kind of things. Did you take much inspiration from those games then, or how did you kind of figure that out yourself?
4: Yeah, I mean, we looked at how we could do something better from a technical point of view, and we kind of had this idea of maybe a series of screens at once, like trying to get a whole world um, running at once. You know, I mean, I quite like uh, the gargoyle games like um, Thunder Rack and Marsport, where you, where you kind of had this simulated world going on. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, could you could you do an adventure game where, where it was a whole world running at once? And Charles was quite interested in that as, as a way to kind of advance the genre uh, and do something that these guys weren't. And we also went down to... Uh, it was something like a micro affair, uh if you remember those or it, or it may yeah. it may have been a pcw show and we, looked, we went across to the level nine stand when they still did that kind of thing and they were showing a game called raj which was doing exactly that as well it it had like several screens all running at once so people were walking in and out of the of the current location you know and that kind of that kind of gave us the idea that 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 what we were thinking about was the right thing because if, if level nine were thinking about it, then you know we kind of felt that adventures were going to kind of move that way, which which turned out to be completely wrong. But um, all these things happened at once, and it looked it looked like that's what we should do to try and get a sort of tech advantage. I mean, in truth, with adventure games, you didn't really need a tech advantage, but the the, the sort of culture of writing games was that every game would would be technically better than the last one somehow you know like more sprites or or more colors or some some fancy effect you know th- there was always a technical gain that people were looking for so you know running the whole and the world,
1: magazine reviews focused on those a lot of the time
4: as well didn't they oh they really did yeah it was all it was all you know how does it use the machine how does it how does it advance things um so yeah you, you know we, we could have just written a normal adventure game with a single screen and, and made a really great game and it, and it probably would have been fine because you could have. You could have just had great graphics and and a great game and, and you know an, an adventure game would would have been okay but um you know we said let's let's try and push it and and it it proved to be quite quite valuable because we wrote this demo where where we had a we could absolutely demonstrate that we had we had these characters walking in a in and out of a a kind of separate you know we had a we had like a we had a screen with a what we were called the zen garden and there was a there was like a a shed with a with a doorway and, and we could we could kind of prove that we were having characters walking in and out and bumping into each other and stuff and, and uh charles would take this off to to Mirasoft and people like that and and say look at this tech it's going to be amazing you know and, and people liked it they were like wow this is something new so you know it, it did its job in that sense well like
2: the rivals that we've mentioned had their own kind of game engines and uh like you've been talking about the uh virtual theater and we a lot of people know about the scum engine and the uh sierra interpreter was it was it a a bit of a challenge to kind of implement a whole engine and and was that like the immediate thing that you did when uh you very first like started at revolution
4: yeah we i mean we started working on that engine and uh it was not that difficult i mean it was bigger than anything than i'd done before but you know it was, it was manageable and, it, and in those days there was there was no internet to distract you so we, we we just kind of zoned in on it and and hacked it out you know it was like real real old, old style just hack a game out and and you know we'd we'd often go up to wales where there was even less distraction <laughs> there was nothing in wales there wasn't even a pub to distract you so uh, we just we just wrote <laughs> tons of code really really quickly and and fairly soon we had the whole thing working you know uh but i mean key to it was a was a scripted language that that we invented which other people were doing as well um that you didn't try and, all all the puzzles and dialogue and stuff and all those things that happen when you interact you, you know they weren't coded in in assembly like the engine was they they were written in a in a higher level scripted language and and all these other games they all, they all did the same thing I and mean, we we didn't know they did but later we found out that everyone was doing the same thing and we just invented um our own version of it you know so it, it was actually i mean the history the history is that by the time we did broken sword we we gave up on the whole running world thing because we couldn't think of gameplay that that fit it very well mm. but the the scripting language turned out to be the most important thing by far and and that that was used the iterations of the version that we wrote for lure the temptress they they were that 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 system was used right through to ink Cold blood probably even and, even broken sword 3 that's that's like really important because
2: you know having a a kind of an arms race with <laughs> these interpreters and engines like you know sierra games to me because they were using the scum engine until like later titles came out they felt a bit dated and then right having something with like a, a bit of a higher level of ai or or you know a, a bit more technology in there really seemed like a cutting edge thing and could actually you know, selling an adventure game because the fan base was huge back then.
4: Well, I, I mean, I think Sierra were kind of running out of out of road, really. They, I don't think they, they quite knew where where to go. I mean, the problem was, in, in in a wider sense, that adventures were were being squeezed by by other genres, uh, and Sierra Sierra and LucasArts were, were a lot bigger than we were, and, uh, you know, they they built a whole big company just doing these these quite simple. I mean technically simple uh although you know in terms of design they were quite sophisticated but they were they were quite simple but big big but simple games and they'd built a huge business on it uh, and then and then things started to turn and they were in trouble you know uh, you know revolution was a bit smaller so we 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 ended up sort of ducking and diving and being being pushed this way and that into into slightly different genres when when, when it got really tricky for adventure games but um
2: yeah you could uh, see them all kind of going into like kind of film stuff so like you know obviously sierra had the the, the crazy fmv stuff and then uh you had like they had a tentacle and stuff like yeah. that on the lucas arts film and that that was be- kind of moving more away from the traditional point and click but still uh, you know kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, addressing
4: that group yeah i mean i i thought Tentacle was a was a, a genius piece of work, I and mean, it doesn't it doesn't get the respect that it that it deserves. You, people people don't really talk about it much, but it, t- Tentacle I thought was brilliant. Um,
2: yeah, that's when I felt they really stepped up, and like Full yeah, Throttle yeah. as well was a yeah yeah a, a yeah. really interesting one. Yeah. But
4: we'll we'll just go back
2: to a uh, Laura the Temptress because um, back then, like you know, Monkey Island was a absolutely huge title on the Amiga. Did you guys want to try and kind of get into that market and? and also have that humor around it? Uh,
4: well, we, we, I mean, we saw ourselves as being in the same market. You know, we were doing Broken Sword when, when Monkey Island was around. So, you know, uh, it, it, we, we kind of, in the end, were thinking it, it's it's LucasArts in the States and, and us in, in Europe, you know, uh, which was true for a very, a very short period of time. You know, we we always thought. I mean, it goes right back to when we looked at King's Quest and stuff. We we thought they were, those American games were a bit too slapstick for us. We wanted to do something a little bit darker. You know, so if you if you look at like Steel Sky, I mean, it's quite a the the, the backdrop to the game is quite is quite dark and um, serious. You know, and, and the humor is is a more more immediate level. So you know, it's full. I mean, those games, are, all our games, are full of humor, but it's not we're not selling a humorous game. If you see what I mean, you know, we're selling a you know, the the backdrop to broken sword is quite a serious, it's quite a serious plot and story. And, and, uh, you know, what's, what's happening is, is like, you know, properly the end of the world is coming, you know, from the, from the Templars, but a, a lot of funny things happen. And that was more, that was more our, our British take on, on the, the, the way to frame the game. If you see what I mean? Yeah. I think, um,
2: so I was a huge
4: 2000 AD
2: fan and uh, obviously uh, Dave Gibbons was like involved with 2000 AD as well and it had that kind of humour. I remember um, there was a robot that used to follow Dread around and annoy him called Walter the Wobot and he had a lisp and it kind of reminded <laughs> me of uh, Joey from uh, Beneath a Steel Sky. Yeah, very like Joey yeah. in Beneath a Steel yeah. Sky, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we love Joey. I was, I was wondering... Was that was that a huge task, kind of beneath Steel Sky, especially the implementation of uh, audio?
4: Yeah, I mean, Steel Sky was was it was probably the hardest one we ever did, actually, because it it was a lot bigger than than Lord of the Temptress, but we never we 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 never had a budget that that matched the, the the scale of what we were doing. You know, so the the thing was written really really tightly on a on an absolute shoestring. I mean, it, it was it was a very close run. Was was Steel Sky? It, it, you know, we we could have gone down. I mean, Lua was Lua was dodgy in its own way because uh, you know we got caught up in the middle of the the Mirosoft scandal. So we we we, which actually in the end turned out well for us. But uh, you know. Lure was difficult in its in its own way. Steel Sky was difficult because it was it was much bigger and, and there was just not the budget to match it. You know what we turned out was a was a pretty great game, and after that we had a, a huge opportunity because because you know Steel Sky did well and people liked it and and Virgin kind of kind of looked at it and said, what would it, what would happen if we actually funded you properly, and, and that was that was how um, Broken Sword came about.
1: What was kind of your relationship with Virgin? How, how did that get started? And um...
4: well, it all goes back to um, Charles knowing Sean Brennan. Uh, so when he was, and that and that goes back into the, it's a very convoluted, um, but but Charles and Sean Brennan go right back into the Arctic days. Uh, and when Charles was at Activision, where he went after US Gold, he came across Sean Brennan again, and Sean said, "Look, if you ever go back into," development come and talk to me um which is obviously what what eventually happened uh and sh- when sean was at mirrorsoft now mirrorsoft went down with robert maxwell uh sean went across to virgin you know v- virgin in the in the early days of virgin interactive they were they were really very cool you know they were they were kind of super ambitious and and you know they'd throw a lot of money at uh, promotion and uh, you know the stuff they did with the bitmap brothers uh, sort of all the rock star photography shots and stuff, you know, they were, they were trying to shake things up and, and they were, they were pretty bullish about things. And, 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 you know, their attitude to us was, well, you know, Steel Sky was, was pretty good. We'll fund you properly now, do something, do the best adventure game ever. And we'll, we'll see what happens, you know? Uh, so for that, for that period of time, they were absolutely brilliant. Now things later changed when, when the ownership of Virgin changed in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then the American office started, to, started to fail. And, 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 in in a very familiar turn of events, you know, took its its more successful European um, down with it.
1: Well, I loved Beneath a Steel Sky and I remember first playing a demo of that on um, the cover disc of Amiga format. Um, I think it was during the school holidays and just, you know, playing it over and over again and couldn't wait for the full game to come out. And it kind of felt around that time in, you know, 94, I remember, you know, Core Design released Universe that year as well. And obviously you guys put out Beneath a Steel Sky. It kind of felt like the British adventure game scene was really taking off. Tell us a bit about kind of the background of, beneath the steel sky from your memory then and obviously like Ravi mentioned you know Dave Gibbons been involved as well how did the team and kind of the project come together and the idea
4: basically we we were we had this idea of, of cities in in Australia and I don't know how it came about but we had we had we kind of had cities and we had warring cities in, in the outback of Australia that that they're all in, in a big sort of uh Void between them all, and they all hate each other. and they're all they're all impl- sending AI to undermine the other one, and that's what we had. And we couldn't quite bring it into focus, uh, and and sort of say this is this is what the game is. So Charles sent myself and Dave Cummins, um, uh, Dave Cummins, who wrote a lot of the dialogue in those days. Uh, and was absolute genius at it. I mean, a lot of the humour came from Dave. So the two the two of us got sent to Wales again. Uh, and, and told not to come back until we had a, a coherent game design. So we, we drove up to Wales, messed about for like three or four days, and, and then we we suddenly realised we only had a day left, and we had to go back with a with a design document for Charles. So we so we kind of just blitz sat down, and blitzed out a design of of what what would happen from start to beginning in in Beneath Steel Sky. Uh, and I I was basically writing it on paper, and handing the sheets to Dave, who typed them into the Mac. And we did this for like eight hours solid, and at the end of it, we had we had basically a pretty good design document for Beneath a Steel Sky, and then it was safe to go back. So we, we got in the car the next day and took it back to Charles, and like uh, probably quite a lot of that of that original design that we just kind of we it's just like kind of an, an out of body experience just like shit we have to type something you know so <laughs> type type uh, and what we what we what we came up with was that was not bad actually so a lot of it survived and a lot of the characters um uh came through and i amazingly enough i actually found that the, the notes that the handwritten notes that i did for that back in 93 i've still got them so i'm gonna i'm gonna scan those and put them in the book and uh Anyone that can read my handwriting can check it against the the eventual game. Uh, but I, I'm, I, 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 there's, there's quite a lot of it actually actually survived. So, you know, uh, I was quite pleased about that.
2: It's, it's it's really interesting because it was at a period of time when uh, kind of floppy disk technology was, was uh, still being used, but uh, CD-ROMS yeah. need to come in favour. I think it came on 15 discs originally.
4: It came on, yeah, Amiga one, it came on it was more like 14 discs but yeah yeah there's there's, there's a funny story where where we actually during development we we forgot about disc 13 so the disc the game came on discs like one one to one to 12 and then it skipped from 12 to 14 and 15 you know and as you play it it asks you to please insert disc 14 or whatever and we suddenly realized there's the disc missing so uh we didn't want to change the program at all. So it's so it sort of like the data moved down in all the tables and stuff. So all we did was change the text message and the, that it pops up. So when it says, when it should be saying, please insert disk 14, we changed it. So it said, please insert 13. And and then we just <laughs> we just renumbered the disks. So th- there's actually a missing disk. I think it's 1 to 14.
2: I was wondering, did that help prevent piracy because <laughs> the pirates <laughs> wouldn't copy 15 discs?
4: Well, n- no, not at all, because we actually got a Russian pirate version of it that, that, that actually re- reorganised it all onto about 12 discs. So um <laughs> put some better compression in than we were doing. So no, <laughs> it didn't help at all.
1: Well, I know you did actually do a, a CD-ROM talky version. I mean, I, I was playing the CD32 version of it probably last summer, actually. Right. Um, with the voice acting on as yeah. well, you know, that was very revolutionary for the time. I mean, some of the accents in there do crack I, I me up a bit. I think it was the Royal now.
2: Shakespeare Company that doing um, some of the some of the voices. Uh, yeah. yeah. What
4: was kind of what was the story there with with that version then? Uh, well, we were running out of money basically on the on the normal version, so Virgin said, "Oh, here's here's what we can do. There's this thing called CD32 coming out. Why don't we do a voiced version for that? And and here's the money that that will That will take, you know, here's an extra budget for that version. So why don't we give you that money now to finish the floppy version, and then when that's finished, you'll get the completion bonus, and you can spend the completion bonus on the CD32 version. So it was like an accounting sleight of hand. I mean, why they couldn't just give us some more money, I don't know, but that's that's what they did. So they they said basically you're not going to finish this game or we said we're not look, we're, we're running out of money you know we we can't we can't finish this so the the CDT 32 sleight of hand was how the game got finished and, th- and then it turned out to be fairly ins- and i think it was one of the it was one of the first ever voiced games and it was pretty expensive as well because there was so much text in it you know it wasn't like a up a where someone says game over or whatever or get ready for level two there, there was However, many thousand lines of dialogue, you know. So it turned out to be quite an expensive undertaking. Uh, the recording itself was was in a it was in someone's front room on on uh, a, a busy road in London. It, it was a disaster because every time every time the, the, the bus went past or a lorry, you could actually hear it on the first recording. So uh, wow. they, they they had to send it. The whole thing got sent back and, and re recorded again. So it was a complete shambles, not, uh, a disaster really. <laughs> But no, no one had ever done it before. I mean, we'd never been in, in, a, in a recording studio or or knew what what was the way to do it or how to organise such a thing, you know. So it, it was a total farce. Uh, somehow we got away with it. Uh, but it,
1: And I think as well, the, the fact that, you know, you actually had actors doing it, because I know a lot of, a lot of times about then, you know, even like four motion video games, they'd often just get, you know, staff from
4: around the office or
1: the programmers <laughs> to play the parts,
4: wouldn't they? Programmer voices. Yeah, that, that would have been a lot even worse. That would have been really bad uh it, it's not bad actually is it the final one i mean the voices no. the voices aren't bad at all apparently um jason isaacs is uh, one of the actors um right because if you look on internet movie database if you if you if you find jason isaacs who's obviously a big star now you, you scroll down to the very bottom of his of his uh, credited titles you'll see benny for Steel sky there uh, and someone oh, pointed said. this out to me and i was like surely not went and had a look and saw it and i was like wow i I didn't know that so i wrote to him on uh, instagram saying hey uh, jason you you don't know me but apparently you started in our video game back in the early 90s do you remember it um but he hasn't replied i was i was wondering you know that
2: kind of cd rom did that open your guys eyes to like you know creating broken sword and a much uh, bigger experience but also like was there any Beneath a Steel Sky 2 stuff that happened? Uh, w- was it ever
4: considered? Uh, certainly CD-ROM, yeah. I mean, that that once once you see it, you know, once you get your... Like like, like hard disks and floppy disks, I mean, once you see that technology, you realise that everything's going to shift very rapidly. So, I mean, uh, Broken Sword was always going to be a CD-ROM game or, or a two-CD-ROM two game, as it turned out. Uh, as, to, as to what we did next, I think long before long before steel sky was finished they charles and sean were talking about the templars and i, and I think they they just got chatting uh, uh, over dinner one night about about templar stuff and charles got interested in it and uh because i think sean had read the umberto echo book uh and, and i think that other book holy blood holy grail was was starting to be a thing back then so all of those things happened at once and uh Templars was, was where we were going to go. Uh, And at that point we just forgot about Steel Sky, you know, because it was, it was so eclipsed by what, what Broken Sword was and what Broken Sword became. Uh, It it was many years later before we started thinking, you know, this, this is something we should go back to because we actually own the rights to it. You know, we always started uh, 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 with a new engine, really. I mean, the script system would, would come across and, uh, uh, and that was about it. I mean, and that, that system got, got, Improved quite consider- considerably for Broken Sword. Uh, the rest of it was new, and uh, it, it was the f- also Broken Sword. We, you know, I sat down at the beginning of it and said, "What about all the virtual theater stuff? You know, are you guys gonna are you gonna have this open world?" Uh, and and you know, Charles kind of looked a bit sheepish and said, uh, "It's time to give up on that stuff." Uh, and at that point, uh, our, our engine became effectively the same as what lucasarts or sierra had you know a single a single location a ui and scripts and stuff and uh, it, so it, it was actually a simpler engine than than the previous ones you know steel Sky's engine is, is more technically sophisticated in some ways than broken swords because it has to do more
2: do you think we'll ever see or is there a kind of a like a you know there's a scum vm which kind of runs it in a virtual machine uh the scum yeah. engine and uh there's residual as well i think for lucasarts interpreter do you, do you think we'll see a virtual theater one i uh, like a i think of- SCUM, scum vm can run all those anyway can't it, it does do yeah Revolution. oh it does yeah. to, my knowledge of scum isn't as good then yeah uh what do you think of people then playing these kind of older titles on a uh, modern systems and still yearning for them
4: well, I, I mean, it, I mean, it's a great, great thing. Uh, I, I remember when ScumVM wrote to us and said, can we have your source code? You know, and in those days, you, you tended to be, I mean, as now, really, you tended to be quite um, protective of things like source code. So it, it was quite a big ask in a way uh, I couldn't see any reason not to give them the source code and, and keep the games, keep the games alive because, uh, and this, this would have been, Broken sword era uh, when they wrote to us, uh, and I kind of saw it as a way of bringing steel Sky back to life because I still sort of had the idea that in future that we would it would be cool to do a sequel you know I mean everyone else had forgotten about it, and they were they were like broken sword is the is the thing you know and of course it was. I wanted to do a steel sky sequel, so i I saw ScumVM as a way of bringing the game back to life and keeping it alive and i couldn't i couldn 't see a downside given it wasn 't really being sold anymore, so I actually got buy in at revolution and and sent them the source code and um, and they 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 ported it over and we we always um, we always did end up giving them the source code so i mean they 've got um they 've got bro broken sword games. I think they have In Cold Blood. I'm not sure. They might have In Cold Blood as well. But yeah, ScumVM, is a great, great project. We we always supported them. It's
2: really interesting, kind of, the way that you say that. I can see how you guys kind of, with the success of Broken Sword and all the other um, kind of adventure games disappearing with the rise of 3D, I can see how that was kind of seen as a huge direction for the company to go and we're just going to cut and run and... Kind of go into that. Did you feel uh, very proud and like a lot of success that the Broken Sword series was able to go onto these new platforms where other people hadn't been able to?
4: Yeah, I mean, and Broken Sword. I mean, it was it was bigger than anyone expected, really. You know, I mean, we we had a feeling it was it was something quite quite good, uh, but but you never know until those first reviews uh, start coming in and. Uh, it's still Broken Sword is still a thing today. You know, you can go on, you can go on the Facebook group, and there's people chatting about it. You know, it's it was much bigger than anyone thought it would be because when you know when we even when we were finishing Broken Sword One Virgin Virgin who were at that point going going the wrong direction, you know, their their new people there were telling us the adventures were dead and you know forget all about it and uh, uh, we're never going to make our money back on Broken Sword One. So you know do do a really cut down sequel, please, and uh, and uh, you know we might might recoup. Uh, you know they were they were quite 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 unpleasant about Broken Sword even before it came out, uh, and of course now it's it's seen as a as a as a classic game, you know. But we never thought back then that it would it would come back on GBA and iPhone and iPad and you know all the places where it's available now. It, 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 we never we never in a million years thought for that sort of thing would happen, you know. Uh, you know, you put it out on the PC and the Amiga and Six months later, its retail life is over and that'll be the end of it. You know, that's what we expected.
2: Yeah, I I heard it. Well, Charles told us in his interview that basically uh, it was really hard to get any kind of promotion for Broken Sword and without getting it on a few demo CDs and a few demo discs uh, for the PlayStation, it it it, it kind of, it, it wasn't driven commercially, whereas the, the, the users and the gamers actually really enjoyed it.
4: And yeah, it. yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's just one of those games that, that people like, uh, and you know, word of mouth keeps it alive. So it was never like, uh, you know, the publisher at the time they were obsessed with um, Resident Evil, which, you know, it's, it obviously sold a lot more at, at full price. And, and, and they, they were just, everything was Resident Evil, which they just they were just crazy for it. And, and they were looking at Broken Sword and saying, oh, this is just not as cool, you know. It's just not as cool. Can you do something like that? You know, we want we want action and blood, and you know, what's all this intellectual Templar stuff? It's it's too much, you know. Uh, but, it's, you know it's too
2: smart. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah.
4: just it, it wasn't rock and roll enough for them, you know. By the end, but uh, you know, I, a lot of these people that that were that were very rude to us back in those days, a lot of them go around now saying oh yes i was involved with broken sword you know that's one of, that's one of my early works you know i i guided that product and and, and saw it through you know <laughs> it's quite funny really
1: rewriting history
4: yeah history's always been rewritten uh, there's, there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of that around the broken sword and uh, who, who worked on it and who did what and, and all the rest of it
1: you mentioned before about you know wanting having these ideas for a sequel to beneath the steel sky and obviously we've got Beyond the Steel Sky um, in 2020. I mean, w- w- were you involved in that project then?
4: I was involved in early design, um, and then, and then not beyond that. So not the production.
1: Okay, yeah. Where did the idea for that come from then? The getting that back, that franchise back after all that time. Uh,
4: well, I mean, the, the 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 thing was we owned the we owned the rights to it, which was actually quite something because the, you know the the publishing industry with what what they were. About was taking your intellectual property rights away from you in return for funding you know so not not many people from from the early days ended up owning their own stuff but we we did own uh both broken sword and steel sky so I guess after broken sword five the the feeling was you know we could you know the logical it was either another broken sword and people you know if you've did, if you've just done four years as it effectively was on broken sword five it's, it's like can we do something else you know so it, it seemed like it, it seemed like at the time was right to, to have another look at steel sky because you know people were talking about it again it, it, you know it was, it was never quite as widely known as as broken sword was but i think people were coming to it and uh, you know the, the scum vm version and and uh, the fact that if you were a player of broken sword you know you might say what else can i play and people would say. You know, have a look at Steel Sky. It's not as good, but it's still pretty cool. So, I mean, it it never died. You know, and, and it started to get its own little niche as a as a as a as a cult classic. And uh, th- we figured there was a bit of interest, and it was it could be something that we we'd be able to um, bring back to life.
1: Well, I know you do. Um, you've run a, a blog on Tumblr um, all about your Revolution Development Day. So um, I'll link that up in the show notes as well. But obviously, you're turning this into a full more fully fledged project you're actually going to be doing a book about these um, tales aren't you
4: yeah well it's, it's just about finished um, I mean all, all this stuff uh, and the, the reason I can I can speak about it with some confidence is that I've, I've spent the last six months researching it and, and building a timeline of what happened when and um, you know who did what and uh, and all the rest of it uh, I just figured that it, it was time to do it because you know you go back to you know 1990 and it's it's quite a long time ago now and, and people are starting to forget it you know some people are actually dead so you know (laughs) if you wait too long no no one will remember it at all so i I thought it was important to 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 try and get some of it down on paper and 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 freeze that record you know so i've 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 done a lot of research and talked to a lot of people and jogged people's memories and badgered them for documents and stuff and uh, and i've actually got quite a good um Recollection now of, of of what happened and and how we made those games and and, and uh, I, I put it all down. So so yeah, that's that's coming in a in a month or so, hopefully.
1: So if people want to keep up to date with that, where should they go? Then is there any way they can keep keep an eye on?
4: Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it'll uh, when it when it when it hits Kickstarter or or, or however I do it. Um, obviously, Twitter is a good place. I'm, I'm on there, or there's there's tonywarren.io. I think I have a, a mailing list on there as well. Uh, and a discord channel so uh, any of those things and uh and keep an eye out and i'll I'll start talking about it more soon. It should be pretty yes. good because there's gonna be i mean there's about three hundred pages of uh of 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 text which is bigger than i thought it was going to be but th- i'm gonna put in pr- probably a hundred pictures of of different stuff so it's gonna be a real a real good thing for 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 revolution fans certainly and uh, and anyone with a with a hit, with an interest in retro anything retro game dev you know
1: yeah, and I think you're right. It's just important to get this stuff out there because it's still, you know, it's such a young industry relatively, isn't it? And I think a lot of the time, because it moves forward so quickly. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that we do this podcast. I think, you know, often people forget to look back a bit and you don't want this stuff to be lost forever, do you?
4: Yeah, and I, and I think it's also people are, people are interested in it now. You know, if you, if you went yeah. back to, I don't know, you went back to 2010, I mean, some people are interested in it, but not as much. I think, I think mm. the whole retro gaming and, and, you know, going back into 8 bit, there seems to be much more serious interest in it now than there used to be. Uh, it, it's some, you know, and, you know, you can write, you can write an Amiga game now and actually, and actually do okay from it you know or a spectrum game i mean it's it's yeah. it's almost a commercial reality again is so 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 great as the interest in that in that kind of era so um yeah i mean it just feels like a good time to 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 do all this stuff because it's not it's not a thing to be forgotten and moved on from you know it's 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 of value i think
1: and long may it continue. So yeah. um, I'll, I'll put a link to your website uh, in our show notes as well, Tony, so people can keep an eye on that. And obviously, we'll give it a mention on the show when the, the Kickstarter launches too.
4: Well, awesome. And, well, uh, I'll, I'll send you. A, I'll send you a pre-production copy, and you can have a read.
1: Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And it's been incredible to uh, talk to you as well and hear some of your stories. So uh, thanks for taking the time to come on and be our guest this week.
4: That was great. Thank you very much.